it seems to be that the economy is not barreling towards the recession that we expected would come for much of last year, and frankly, that you would expect to come when interest rates are very high, when inflation has to get under control. Economists and politicians have been warning about the possibility of a looming recession for months. But that hasn't happened yet. You have a very strong labor market, a very low unemployment rate, and a labor market that is still growing, that is still just churning month after month after month. Rachel Siegel is an economics reporter at The Post. These are all real clear engines of the economy that have to shut off, and we're not seeing anything like that right now. So does that mean we've actually avoided a recession? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Kim Belware. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. Today, I talk with Rachel about why this economy is baffling economists, how the government's efforts to fight inflation have been going, and yes, whether or not a recession may still come our way. Let's unpack a little bit of what has happened up until now. I remember last summer, inflation was really high, and then the Federal Reserve tried to slow inflation by raising the cost of borrowing money, right? That's exactly right. The Federal Reserve was on a really aggressive tear for almost all of last year to catch up to inflation. I'd like to underscore for the American people that we understand the hardship that high inflation is causing and that we are strongly committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal. They repeatedly had to hoist interest rates faster than they had previously planned to, and that gets us to where we are now. There were also concerns about the Fed's decision to keep raising rates, which we've talked to you about on Post Reports before. So take us back a few months and remind us what economists have been worried about. Well, interest rates are a very blunt instrument. They are pretty much the only thing that the Federal Reserve has to tame inflation and try to slow down the economy. But they don't work with precision. They work with a lag. And they can't fix specific problems. So if you have inflation that is spurred from broken supply chains, a higher interest rate is not going to help crates come off of ships any faster or or truckers get across the country any faster. Interest rates work with very broad force. So when the Federal Reserve has to raise interest rates, it is basically using this very broad-based measure to try and address a lot of different problems. The additional problem with that is that high interest rates can cause a recession. They can slow the economy so forcefully and even so abruptly that the economy slows too much and ends up causing many other more painful issues as too. So if rates go up, the economy can slow down. But why didn't the economy follow historic trends after the Fed hiked rates last year? Well, that's another question under the very long list of things that have just been so different this time around. I probably have been on this podcast before saying that there is no playbook for anything like what we've experienced since COVID. And it's remarkable that that just continues to be true. The same models just have not worked. They are models that don't really fit with the kind of inflation we're seeing right now or the reasons we're seeing inflation right now. And time and again, that just Maybe that continues to be the only consistent thing. Given the current state of the economy now, have fears of a recession gone away? They have not gone away. 
it's possible that the economy will hit a recession later this year when the full weight of all of these interest rate hikes really come into view. Everything the Fed did last year and continues to do, they operate with a lag. So it's possible that it will be later into 2023 or early into 2024 when that slowing is really felt. It's also possible that there could be some new shock that we don't even know about. Inflation was pushed up quite a bit last year because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If something similar were to happen that the models can't account for yet, that could complicate things even more. So it might be the case that we've avoided a recession so far, but there's no guarantee that things will stay that way. There's another scenario in which the Fed achieves something called a soft landing, where it's not just that the only choices are no recession or a really, really bad recession, but that the Fed manages to get control of inflation, slow the economy down, and do it just enough where it doesn't cause a major hit to the labor market. It doesn't cause people to pull back on their spending. It doesn't spook the economy in a way that has these ripple effects that are not helpful for anybody. A soft landing is this idea that maybe is becoming somewhat more likely where somehow the Fed manages to land this plane. That seems like a good thing, is it? A soft landing would certainly be much better than so many other alternatives out there, but it does mean a couple of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that no pain will be involved. The Fed has made very clear that even some of the best-case scenarios could mean a slightly higher unemployment rate or just the ongoing consequences that come with rates that have to stay high. And then it's also possible that this is a fight that will have to be fought again. The Fed has been very clear that it's concerned about prematurely declaring victory, that it could prematurely think that there are signs pointing towards no recession, a soft landing. But inflation is a really nasty beast, and inflation that isn't completely rooted out of the economy could come back to rear its head again soon. After the break, I ask Rachel how realistic a soft landing for the economy would be and what role the Biden administration could play in getting us there. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Rachel, explain this to me. We haven't fallen into the recession that experts were worried about. More jobs have been added to the economy. Inflation has gone down since last year, right? It feels like this should be good news. Why are economists still unsure? I think economists are still unsure because they've been proven wrong time and again. Anyone who has come away from the experience of the last couple of years with any sort of certainty, I don't think has learned very much. There's a real sense of, I think, hesitancy to 
definitively say that anyone knows what's happening right now. Inflation has eased for the past seven months, but there are concerns that it's going to be harder and harder to continue that trend. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Last summer, inflation peaked at a rate of 9.1% if we were to compare prices to the year before. Now they're down to 6.4%. So we'll take that as good news. But the problem is that some of the reasons that inflation has fallen over the last seven months were a little easier to deal with, relatively speaking. So gas prices have gone down from their summer peaks. Supply chains have really improved. Those are things that have helped inflation come down from those really, really, really high highs from last summer. Now, though, in order to get inflation down to more sustainable levels, which is somewhere around 2%, the Fed is going to have to root out really persistent, sticky sources of inflation that are harder and harder to address. Those are things like a mismatch in the labor market, which is basically when you just have many, many more open jobs than you have people looking for work, or wages that keep rising because of those mismatches. These are also things that interest rates aren't really refined to address and just mean that getting down from the 6.4 where we are now to 2 is going to take much harder work. Well, we've been looking at this from a bird's eye view. And Rachel, I'm wondering if you have any insight into how Americans are feeling about the economy these days. You know, one of the most interesting things that I've found in conversations with families and businesses is that there can often be a disconnect between someone's personal experience and the way they think of the economy as a whole. So I'll talk to a small business owner. This was just the other week. And the small business owner was saying to me, I actually think that my business is doing really well. My numbers are good. Every time I wonder if I've got to pull back, I just go ahead and look at my books, and that's not what we're seeing. But that she'll have conversations with other business owners where there's just this shared sense of a little bit of gloom, a little bit of unknown. You know, where where is the overall economy going? Should we be acting differently? And I think this this psychological phenomenon is really interesting where— the sense that people have about how the economy is working as a whole doesn't necessarily reflect their individual experience. But of course, there are so many people right now who are hurting under inflation, who do feel the disproportionate effects of high rent, of egg prices going up, of grocery bills and restaurant bills and airfares and gas taking up a larger and larger share of their budget. So even though there is quote-unquote, good news that widespread layoffs haven't taken over the economy, that consumers are still spending. There is a huge share of the population that still desperately needs inflation to come under control so that their economic and financial lives can be more stable, too. And what about people who have money, particularly retirement accounts, invested in the stock market? How is that performance affecting this psychology? Well, the markets have had a really, at times, hard-to-predict response to what the Fed is doing. So the markets take very, very clear signals from Federal Reserve officials trying to hint at what they're going to do. And at times, the stock market has gotten really volatile, thinking that a recession is perhaps more likely, or thinking that the Federal Reserve is going to have to raise interest rates more in order to control inflation. 
And I'm sure people who are looking at their investments or looking at their stock market portfolios see that kind of volatility. It's it's not a great time to check if you can avoid it, but the hope is that there will be another side to this. Sometimes it can feel like things that experts and even the media are looking at in the economy, like the stock market or interest rates, they're a little detached from what people are feeling in their day-to-day lives. What's this relationship between a good jobs report or a Fed interest hike and someone's pocketbook? So there are a lot of words that we throw around right now, hot labor market, tight labor market. Well, what does that mean? How might someone actually experience that? In a lot of instances, those are things that can work really well for workers. They allow people to push for higher wages or move from their current job to another better job that maybe pays them more or gives them better benefits or is more flexible on a work schedule. These are all things that have really given workers and employees a lot of leverage and power and agency, especially at a time where Generally speaking, businesses are really desperate to hire. They're really desperate to hold on to their staff and do whatever they can to keep their staff on the payrolls and and happy. It's an open question about how long that kind of dynamic could last, but it's really one of the ways that we've seen people, especially in some of the lower wage sectors, really be able to move up. Maybe their hourly job at a restaurant pays, you know, a couple dollars more an hour or gives a little bit more flexibility on shift schedules. Or maybe someone has moved from a restaurant job to a desk job that allows them to work from home, have a little bit more flexibility about when to be with their family. These are all things that have really strengthened power for workers and could end up being something that lasts even once things stabilize. I also want to ask you about the politics around the economy right now. Recently, in President Biden's State of the Union address, he really emphasized the work his administration has done to kind of kickstart the economy. And he also made frequent reference to this idea that he's rebuilding the economy. So what are the White House's priorities for the economy during the next two years? Well, the White House has a very different job when it comes to economic policy than the Federal Reserve. So the chief job of controlling inflation, that belongs to the Fed. The Biden administration has a lot more power to target specific parts of the economy that it thinks needs additional spending or additional attention. So the second half of his administration is going to involve the implementation of these major legislative packages that Biden really champions as hallmarks of his agenda. That includes the Inflation Reduction Act, other major infrastructure spending projects that he says are going to be part of this idea of rebuilding the American economy. That is a much wider set of tools than the Fed has at its disposal and what the Biden administration will be focused on. Biden also recently changed up his econ team, too. He tapped Lael Brainerd to be the head of his econ team as they gear up for these debt ceiling negotiations. Rachel, can you tell me a little bit about her background and what her appointment tells us about how the White House is approaching the economy? Lael Brainerd is a longtime economic official in Washington, especially within Democratic administrations. She had advisory roles in the Clinton and Obama administrations, but has been at the Fed since 2014. And in her time there, she took on really remarkable influence as not just an individual policymaker, but one who held real sway at the Fed over a very broad set of issues that spanned things from interest rates decisions to 
climate policy to digital currencies. And she was really thought of as the economic powerhouse at the Federal Reserve. She was instrumental in the Fed's fight against inflation. And now we'll take that whole background to the White House, where she will lead the uh, National Economic Council. And of course, that that is a really powerful position to be in, not only as the Biden administration works through an economy that is still very heavily affected by inflation, but is that is trying to think through its own policies to make it easier for families. Well, Rachel, given everything we've talked about, it can feel difficult to determine what is a good or a bad economy. And I'm curious, for someone like you who's closely following economic policy, what do you pay attention to? And what helps you determine whether the country is in good economic shape? How should we all be reading the news about the economy? I guess one place that I start is to know that I don't have all of those answers and that I depend really heavily from conversations that I'll have with families looking over their grocery bill or businesses trying to figure out whether to add on another location or shift sales online versus in-store. These are all things that are part of the daily pulse of the economy or this this fabric that we're all trying to try and understand, this picture we're trying to fill in. But I guess on the other end of it, too, these are questions that we put to powerful policymakers who are making decisions that bear on that family looking at their grocery bill or the business trying to figure out the future. So that's where I've ended up. Rachel, thank you so much for breaking this down for us. Thank you. I hope it was helpful. Rachel Siegel is an economics reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. I'm Kim Belware. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.